Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast. So our guest today is a TD for the Dublin Bay South constituency since the 2016 general election. He has a degree in law, criminology and I believe he's um, a barrister but he may correct me on that one. And if I'm ever to interview this guest again in the future, I could well be introducing him as leader of his party, which is Fianna Foil. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome along Mr. Jim O'Callaghan. Welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast, Jim. Thanks very much for inviting me on, Dan. No, the pleasure is all ours, and thank you for giving up some of your valuable time. Jim, we always like to kick-start these things off for the benefit of any of our listeners that maybe just aren't fully aware of you. Could you give me a little bit of background about where you grew up, what your early years were, were like, what interests you had, and I suppose ultimately what brought you to the, the position that you're in today? Okay, yeah, I'll do that. I'm, I suppose I'm the son of a leash woman and a Kerry man. There were two people who came to Dublin in the 30s and 40s, uh, respectively, met up. Uh, they had five children. I'm the youngest of them, four older sisters. Um, I studied uh, law in UCD. After that, I studied over in England for two years, doing a master's, came back, qualified as a barrister, um married uh, a woman called julie um with a son um and then worked as a barrister with without much involvement in politics i have to say until around 2002 2003 got interested in politics um got into fianna fall through the man who i trained as a barrister under a guy called rory brady he had been very close to bertie ahern uh, contested a number of elections for Fianna Fáil, lost, uh, never really took losing elections personally, actually. Uh, I know sometimes people looked at me after I'd lost a couple of elections and said, my God, you've lost two elections in a row now. Would, would you not realise that you, you just listen to the message? People don't want you. <laughs> I, never took it, I never took it personally, which is actually not a bad way to take politics. Because yeah. conversely, I think if people get elected, on the first occasion, they think, oh, maybe I'm really popular, That's right. which is not the case either. No. But anyway, we got elected uh, to Dublin City Council in 2009. And then in 2016, second time I tried to get elected to the Dáil, got elected. Like, was difficult to get elected for Fianna Fáil uh, in Dublin at that stage. So I got in and managed to get re-elected in 2020. And when I was a TD uh, for Fianna Fáil from... 2016, I was the opposition spokesperson on justice and I had been involved in negotiating the confidence supply agreement with Fine Gael in 2016. Mm-hmm. So that's just the, the gist of bit of the background now. Very good. That's, that's quite interesting. So you're a relative newcomer to political life then? Yeah, yeah I'm relative newcomer. Like I suppose you look at politics now and you look at successful people in politics and a lot of them get in at a very, very young age, you know. And, you know, there's obviously huge benefits in getting into politics when you're very young. Like if you look at uh, Michal, the current Taoiseach, he was involved in politics in his early 20s. Uh, same with Leo Varadkar, the former Taoiseach. Same with Enda Kenny, the Taoiseach before that. Same with Brian Cowan, the Taoiseach before that. And Bertie. So like, I think the Irish political system, you know, perseverance is important, but it also takes time, I think, to get elected, to establish yourself 
And, um, you know, that's why I think people who've got into politics very young do well. But my own view is that, and I, I'm happy I didn't get into politics when I was uh, in my 20s, and that I really only, I suppose, became serious about politics uh, in terms of being elected to the Dáil, I suppose it occupying most of my time uh, when I was in my 40s. You know, I don't think it should be a, a life sentence, to be honest with you. No, no, that's a, a good enough way of putting it, a life sentence. <laughs> Tell me this, um, Jim, what's your assessment of the current coalition between Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and uh, the Greens? Well, I think it is probably the most likely government that could be put together after the last uh, election in February 2020. Um, like it was a disappointing election result for uh, Fianna Fáil. It was a very disappointing election result, I suspect, for Fianna Gael. The Greens did well. Sinn Féin did well, uh, particularly in light of how they had performed about eight months previously in the local elections. I suppose objectively, when you look at it, uh, like there had been a confidence and supply agreement between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Um, so if there was to be two out of three of the three largest parties in a government together, it's not that unusual that was two of them that it worked uh, in the confidence and supply. And I think uh, when you looked at the numbers, like the numbers for the after the last election made it very difficult to form a government. Um, and I suppose it was probably people looking at it objectively in after, say, after the 8th of February last year, they would have said, yeah, that's a likely government, you know. Would you personally, uh, Jim, have been happy to go into negotiations, and maybe you did, with uh, Mary Lou and the Sinn Féin leadership? Well, it's my own view, and I've said this before now, before the election, we were absolutely adamant that we wouldn't go into uh, government with uh, Sinn Féin. Now, whether that was the right thing for us to say or the wrong thing for us to say is irrelevant, but we were absolutely adamant about it. And like mm-hmm. I remember being on the radio the day before the general election and people saying, sure, listen, you will be probably going with Sinn Féin. And like, the line was that we weren't going to go in. And that's the line I gave the day before the election. And that's the line I gave the day after the election. I think we would have lost a lot of credibility. Now, there's a separate issue as to whether or not that was the right policy. Jim, you, like you, my own view. And, you, you said that was the line, so I'm assuming that was the party line. But can, oh, yeah. can, can I be as bold to ask you your personal opinion on that? Well, my personal opinion in terms of Fianna Fáil contesting an election is that we should just fight elections on our own record, on our own manifesto, and we should say to the Irish public, this is our record, this is our manifesto, we want you to vote for us, and you know, we're not ruling in any party, we're not ruling out any party. Mm-hmm. But after an election, if we get the support of the Irish people, we will discuss government formation with parties who have compatible policies, or where there are compatible policies. That's the way I think for the future I would look at it now. Yeah, I, I suppose based looking from an outsider in, I, I'm from County Tyrone, so I'm, I obviously didn't get voting in, in the election that we're uh, speaking about here. But, um, you know, considering that after the election, with the benefit of hindsight, Sinn Féin clearly won the popular vote. So, as I say, with the benefit of hindsight, w- would it have not been an idea to potentially... Look at that, because if you don't, 
You're, you're ignoring a large swathe of uh, voting electors, are you not? Yeah, well, listen, I fully appreciate that anyone who is elected to Dáil Éireann has the equal right of anyone else who's elected to Dáil Éireann, that there's no divisional categorization of people before the Dáil. But um, Sinn Féin got, I think it was 24%, 24.5% of the vote. They did very well in the election. And, you know, probably as time had gone on, if, if there hadn't been an ability to form a government between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, I suspect probably there would have been talks with Sinn Féin because the one thing that the country needed more than anything at that stage was a government. Particularly and in the as, light of COVID, yeah, I agree fully. Yeah, and, like, and as, you know, like, um, I was definitive after the election. People, I remember doing interviews, people saying, you know, would you go in with Sinn Féin? And, like, I said no because I'm like I, I have a lot of you know I've I work well with Sinn Fein TDs I acknowledge their mandate is the same as my mandate but I suppose because we'd been so adamant before the election that uh, it would have looked you know it would have looked dishonest for us to turn around and say a couple of days after the election say actually we've changed our mind and in fairness now that you know Sinn Fein were tactically probably more astute on this issue in the last election because in 2016. They had said they wouldn't talk to Fianna Fáil and they wouldn't talk to Fine Gael. And there was a difficulty after that election in trying to form a government as well. And like Fianna Fáil did a lot of talks with all the parties and Fine Gael did talks with the parties and the independents. And Sinn Féin sort of just pulled back from it. And I think they they were damaged by that process uh, in the, the spring and summer of 2016 because the other parties were seen to be working to try to form a government and they headed away. But they changed their policy uh, they no longer had the policy that they wouldn't go into government with Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. They said they would, whether they would or they wouldn't. We never got to test them on. Yeah. But listen, the, but that, but behind side is, you know, it's easy to talk course, about now, but I just think uh, with, with COVID, there had to be a government. Mm -hmm. And if there hadn't been, like if the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Green thing hadn't been approved, I would have thought then, yeah, we could, we would have spoken, other parties would have spoken to Sinn Féin. Mm -hmm. Just before um, I, I leave the Sinn Féin, um, not till, till we, we move on, but when was the last time that you sat down with a member of Sinn Féin, for example, like a TD, when the cameras weren't watching, when there's no party colleagues around? Like, I suppose what I'm really trying to ask him, what is your personal relationship like with, you know, most of these people? Listen, Dol Aaron. Uh, is no different to the uh, rest of society. There's lots of, uh, you know, very good people there. There's lots of average people there. And there's a few people who aren't great. And that applies across all parties, okay? Mm -hmm. But one of the fake things about uh, Irish politics is people think that politicians are, you know, antagonistic towards all politicians from other parties. It's not the case. Anyone uh, in Dáil Éireann will tell you that most people have good relationships like i've worked on committees uh with Sinn Féin i've worked very well with them like i was on the justice committee that was chaired by Cuevin on Coelan got on very well with them a lot of respect from we worked very well together uh, i'm on committees with lots of other Sinn Féin members so there's no issue about that like when i sit down in a committee with another member of the Oireachtas not looking at them or saying that that's a Sinn Féin person or a Fine Gael person you just mm. judge people by their abilities and their contributions so like politicians don't aren't as um polarized as they want to present uh, politics as being you know 
Well, that's very refreshing to hear that, Jim. So um, that's good. Tell me, do you think the coalition with Fine Gael has potentially damaged Fianna Fáil's electoral support? Um, it might have, but again, the country needed a government. Okay, that's the first thing. Secondly, politics is getting uh, much more competitive, and not just in Ireland, in other countries as well. And 50 years ago, we wouldn't have had you know, two and a half parties. Now we have a whole myriad of other parties. Mm-hmm. And I think the days of any party, you know, just guaranteed 40% yeah. of the vote are over. Yeah. Um, some parties have had the advantage that they haven't been in government yet. And that means they don't come with any uh, government baggage and they don't, they're able to say, oh, listen, if we were in government, we'd be able to resolve this uh, issue much easier. And, you know, I think in about 20 years from now, all the parties that are in Dáil Éireann will have been in government. Yeah. And in a way, you know, that might be refreshing. Everyone will have had a go and everyone will accept that actually it's not as easy as we presented it as being and, and, in and, uh, opposition. And even, even them, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, they can start casting up what they didn't do or what Sinn Féin yeah. and Greens didn't do. Yeah. But you're, you have no party, no party has a, a right to exist. Mm-hmm. You know, like the electorate, you know, they won't vote for a party unless they see the party as putting forward policies and proposals that they want to support and they foresee that this is a party that has performed well previously in the past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, will it damage? Listen, Fianna Fáil has been around a long time. It has good support, and that support will go up and go down. And uh, I think that will happen with all parties. But the most important thing is that whatever political party you have to set out policies. People will vote for you if you put forward attractive policies, mm-hmm. and no political party has an automatic right to exist, Joe. Yeah. What would you perceive to be the coalition's biggest successes to date, Jim? And I suppose with that question, um, there's the obvious question, biggest failures to date, if any, that is. Well, to say it's it's an unusual uh, time and it's a difficult time for a government. But I suppose as well, uh, the agenda has been set for the government by the pandemic. I would have thought the best achievement of the government has been the economic support packages that have been put in place for people who've lost their uh, jobs as a result of the pandemic or whose businesses who have been um, impacted as a result of the pandemic. Like, there's a lot of schemes out there. The ESA, the Employment Wage Subsidy Scheme, uh, the CRIS Scheme, the Pandemic Unemployment Payment. Like, there's a lot of money going out of the state, but I think it is important when there's such a seismic attack on the economy and on society that the state was there to provide the safety net for people. And I think that will be recognised as a good achievement uh, of the government. Listen, in terms of responding to the pandemic, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an extraordinary event and no government is going to have got uh, everything right in respect to it. Like at some stages we were looking at other governments saying they're doing an excellent job in the Czech Republic. We were saying this last year, they've kept their debt so low. And then later on in last year, you know, it just gets worse in the Czech Republic and it's bad there now. So there's nobody escapes this thing. Uh, but I think uh, in general, it's been handled quite well by the government. And I think the economic packages and the policies, although sometimes, you know, people are critical in terms of, we, I'd be critical myself, maybe we need to speed things up a bit. But in general, I think the government has handled the pandemic okay. And one of the failures, if you could identify any, 
I think the biggest failure uh, in, in our response to the pandemic is that we allowed a situation to develop where there were two alternative and at some times conflicting voices emanating from the state. We have the government speaking about the pandemic and separately we have this group of well-intentioned people who were put together by the political system in effort and they speak about the um, pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a good idea that you have these two alternative sources, that there's government and effort and in the public mind there seems to be a difference between the two. That yeah. shouldn't have been allowed to develop. I think Neffet should be, um, the, the message from Neffet should be dominated by politicians who are accountable to the public because of the content of that message. And it's unfair in people in Neffet as well who are the medical advisors, because in fairness to them, they're not elected. People shouldn't be taking frustration out in them. They just provide advice. But I think what we should do, and hopefully we, none of us will be around when it happens in the next pandemic, I think we need to ensure that the state speaks with one voice. What about the speed of the vaccine rollout, Jim? I would have thought that, I'm not saying that's a failure, by the way, but with the benefit of hindsight, uh, could provisions not have been, you know, maybe better made in order to ensure better access to the vaccine? No? I think we're doing okay in that, Niall. And, you know, I've no problem in identifying failings by the uh, government if they're there. Part of the problem is we're comparing ourselves to Northern Ireland and the UK, yeah, I where they've done, they've done a stunning job in terms of rolling out the vaccine there. You know, but like here we've administered around. I haven't looked at the figures today, but I think we're up to around 1.2 million doses have been administered. Over 20% of the adult population over 16 years and if you of look age. At, if you look at the actual dose for dose, um, at Murray, yeah. what the North, I accept that entirely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But so I think we're we're getting there. And I suppose, listen, if we're having a conversation in September, like are people going to worry about the fact that, God, I didn't get my vaccine until May when I thought I'd get it in April? I don't think that's going to be a problem mm. uh, for the government. But I do think it's imperative that uh, we get it rolled out quickly and that when we get it, we administer it into people. And I think we need a, a consistent message from the government that, listen, we're going down through the ages and it'll be done hopefully 80% by the end of June. Mm -hmm. Tim, there's been a lot of talk in the media that you're positioning yourself to challenge for the leadership of Fianna Fáil. Now, I accept these are my words, not your words, so uh, um, I'll, I'll um, put that on record. But go on, give us an exclusive here or something. <laughs> It's been launched tomorrow morning at the GPL at 6 a.m. There we go. The you you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, listen, I um, have a responsibility as a Fianna Fáil backbench TD to ensure that uh, Fianna Fáil's message and Fianna Fáil's identity is advocated and protected, particularly at a time when the other main players, or very many of the main players in Fianna Fáil, are preoccupied in government uh, with COVID. Mm -hmm. And people ask me to do things, to appear in a, a podcast or to give a paper uh, or to do an interview. And I'm happy to do that, you know. And obviously journalism likes to create a little bit of uh, political tension. Of Why course. not? Uh, well, people well, thrive on that, you know. Well, okay, I'm going to ask you a very straightforward question here. I'm being a politician and a relatively new one. I know you'll give me a straightforward answer. Um, if the job were to become available, would you put yourself forward? Yeah, I would, yeah. You would? 
Well, there you go. You can't, yep. get, you can't get any more straightforward an answer than that. So that's very good, Jim. Um, if you were to look at recent polling, why do you think Fianna Fáil has dropped in support? And I suppose, you know, there's, I'd be talking about things. What would you fix, I guess, if you did become leader, Tim? And I suppose that's a lead on from the previous question. Yeah, but I suppose this one answer, yes, I'm giving you a strange answer. <clears throat> I've no idea when that's going to happen. There's no vacancy here. Oh, no, I accept and like, that. What, and what I'm not doing is, you know, planning, I have, I have a programme for my <laughs> leadership right beside me here, which I'm going to roll out you. No, that's that, not, I don't know when it's going to happen. But if, listen, I'm involved in frontline politics. I'm committed to Fianna Fáil. Um, you know, I think it's a really important institution. I think part of the reason Ireland is a very successful post-colonial independent country is because of the policies of Fianna Fáil and I want to see it survive and thrive and I'll do whatever I can to achieve that. Um, okay. I think in terms of why we're not doing well in the polls, the polls fluctuate as well. Uh, now. And like I remember, I'll just use this, we, we just spoke about Sinn Féin earlier. I remember after the local elections in 2019, uh, there was a poll in July 2019, Fianna Fáil were at 30%. Sinn Féin were at 14%. You know, polls change quickly. But, uh, and, 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 and the public attitude can change quickly. And I think ultimately, uh, polls around election times are obviously much more uh, instructive and important than polling now. But there has been a decline in the polls. And I think the reason why it happened was because, like remember, Fine Gael were at 22% in the general election in February 2020. They assumed, and in fairness to Leo Faradkar and Simon Harris, they assumed, okay, they'd lost the election. They thought they were on the way out. Then the pandemic happened. They handled it well in the early stages of it. Mm -hmm. And they were shot up in support. Mm -hmm. And I think the uh, rally round the flag uh, issue, which was common throughout Europe at that time, at the time pandemic, went to Fine Gael because they were in government on their own at the time. And it stayed with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, But my hope is that as time progresses, as people see the government perform more effectively, that some of that pro-government support will come to Fianna Fáil. Yeah, okay. Tim, this next question, there's two or three parts to it, so um, we'll, 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 you can go with us where you want. In March, you delivered a speech on Irish unity to the Sydney Sussex College. In that speech, you delivered a widely publicised paper, The Political, Economic and Legal Consequence of Irish Reunification. So the first part of that, Jim, would be, can you tell us how this document came about in terms of the time and resources? Was it something you worked on yourself or were you able to, I suppose, leverage resources within Fianna Fáil? Um, first of all, the reason it came about is because uh, I said to you earlier, I went and studied in England for a couple of years uh -huh. after UCD. I studied in Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge for two years. Yeah. Um, doing a master's in law and an in film criminology. So I have a connection with it. Um, and <clears throat> I was, I w like, it's, it, it's had a strong connection with Ireland, uh, Sydney, Sussex, for a couple of reasons I mentioned in the paper, but it always attracted uh, people who were doing postgraduate study in law there. So that's sort of how it came apart, uh, along. Like, I was introduced to uh, Professor Eugenie Biagiani, who is the professor of modern history, is the expert in Cambridge University on Irish history, spoke to him. He said, why not give this uh, paper? And I suppose what that's a reflection of is that lots of people around the world are talking about the issue of Irish reunification. And uh, like I've had professors from 
uh, based in America onto me doing interviews about it. They don't get any publicity. But I was asked to do this paper. I wrote it myself. Um, I'm, you know, it's not that I was deprived of, I didn't need resources to do it. I ran it by two other people who I know they thought it was good, gave me a couple of suggestions. But I wrote it myself. Like, it's, it's limited. Although the purpose of it is it was trying to get a discussion going. And I suppose the main issue that concerns me is that, like, I think at some stage in the future, there's going to be a referendum on Irish unity. And it'll be chaotic unless we answer a couple of questions in advance of it, such as, like, what would a new United Ireland look like? Absolutely, 100%. And I suppose, you know, coming from the, our podcast, Shared Ireland, that's exactly, um, I suppose, why we're trying to have these conversations and um, you know, put them out to, you know, ordinary people that's listening and, um, you know, inform each other, I suppose, and see, you know, proposals and people can come up with suggestions and listening to people like you um, that are at the cold face, I suppose, you know, is exactly what's required. Just to follow on from that, Jim, there were a number of eye-catching proposals and one which was a guaranteed, a guaranteed number of cabinet positions for unionists. Can you elaborate on this further? And I suppose, re- reflective of the fact that there would have been mo- a much greater influence in a unity scenario, could this lead to discontent amongst the growing other cohort, maybe? You know, if unionists were guaranteed so many seats? Yeah, well, I think the first thing, Niall, I want to say is that the, the politics of the island of Ireland has changed remarkably since 100 years ago when partition happened. And at that stage, it was very much the divisions were between unionist and nationalist, Protestant and Catholic. Like the whole um, repertoire has now changed completely. I had a, a, a woman on to me today who's uh, an immigrant into Ireland. She's been here about 20 years. She's having discussions about a united Ireland uh, with other people up in Northern Ireland, other immigrants up in Northern Ireland. Wonderful. And she was saying, you know, I, I, I feel, she said, you know, she feels a bit... Uh, inadequate because she doesn't have a full understanding of the background. I said to her, you're in a much better position than people such as myself and other Certainly. people who probably are a bit paralyzed yes. by, our, by our politics and by our history, you know. So, listen, in terms of the, uh, what was one of the proposals I put forward about guaranteed positions for uh, people coming from unionist parties in a new government executive for all of Ireland. I suppose we need to recognize one of the big groups who will be concerned about and opposed to in the first instance reunification are people coming from the unionist tradition or the protestant tradition and historically their fear was that they were going to be forced into a unitary state that would be dominated by nationalists and the catholic church Mm -hmm. and their traditions and heritage uh, would not be protected that's not going to happen Uh, it's just that ireland as a country when i talk about ireland i'm talking about what some people refer to as the Republic, has changed so much uh, in the past 30, 40 years. That, listen, that fear is not there. But I think we do need to recognise that people coming from the Unionist Protestant tradition in Northern Ireland, they have to see that they're going to play an integral part in this new state. Like sometimes, I, I, deba- I, I, I debated with Ian Paisley, sorry, I'm just, I'll, I'll finish this. And I remember like, his analysis, and it's the analysis of a lot of people coming from the Unionist background, is that this would be a takeover, that the southern stage takes over the northern stage. Like, if that's what it's about, you know, I don't want to be part of it. Exactly. The, the reason to do this is not simply to replace uh, the United Kingdom 
with United Ireland in the politics of Northern Ireland. We should recognise that there's an exciting prospect here together for the people of Northern Ireland and Ireland to come together to form a new Ireland. Absolutely, and I echo everything that you're only after saying, Jim. Funny, would you believe it, um, the, our guest previous to this conversation was Ian Paisley, and I suppose yeah. that, that's one of the questions that I asked Ian. You know, can you explain what British identity means to him? And in the event of a new shared Ireland, you know, what would be his fears? Um, what his aspirations would be? And, you know, I suppose... He didn't really give a very clear answer because he was potentially too busy uh, pouring cold water on it saying it'll never happen. Purely from an economical point of view, he was given reasons why it won't happen. And I suppose, you know, ultimately, when we boil everything down, I think that's where this potential could be won or lost. How will it affect people in their pockets, in their everyday lives? Will healthcare be free at the point of entry? People discuss you know, from a pro-union point of view, that the NHS is, is the jewel in the crown. But, you know, from someone living in the north and that has benefit from the NHS, it is fantastic. However, it's broken as well. You know, from years of uh, Tory uh, cuts, you know, um, my, my own, I have two members, two children, uh, both work in, um, in the NHS and like, they literally come home at nights crying because of the lack of resources, the lack of staff, the lack of equipment. And, you know, I suppose that's no different in any jurisdiction, but we, we have to, I suppose, funding for me and health are going to be the two main that I can see as, as things that will get people over the line. What's your opinion on yeah. that? Well, it's a, it's a huge question. And sometimes, um, you know, people maybe in the North, uh, Nile don't recognise how huge a question it is for people in the South as well, the whole issue about reunification. Like people down here, they're very critical of governments, they can criticise the system, but they recognise that this isn't a bad country that we have established here since independence back in 1922. And, you know, unless we have a proposal that is thought through and that isn't going to result in sort of the politics of the South being becoming regressive. Unless we come up with a positive, progressive proposal, people probably in Ireland won't go for it in the same way as people in Northern Ireland won't go for it. But it's incumbent upon us to put forward the best argument. And I agree with you, economics is going to play a very significant part in it. But 100 years ago, if you were to decide whether or not Irish independence should take place on economic grounds, it never would have happened. And uh, nobody could have envisaged back in 1922 that, by the way, in the 70s, this country is going to become part of a European economic community. It'll then become a part of a single market. It'll attract huge amounts of foreign direct investment in. So there's huge opportunities there for everyone on the island. And actually, I think the part of the island that has suffered as a result of partition economically is Northern Ireland. There's no reason why Northern Ireland should be a poor region of a prosperous country. Absolutely. It should be the same way as it was 100 years ago. It should be the most prosperous part of this island. Yeah. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be like that again. Yeah. Tim, in your plan, um, you would see Stormont not continuing as is, as part of a federal st- uh, setup, but rather as a proposal that either the Doyle or the Senate could sit in Belfast and that the PSNI 
would be retained. Could you talk me through them points? Yeah, and just again, these are just my ideas. I'm sure either you or people who've been on your podcast before or people listening may have better ideas, and I'm not wedded to these. But I do think we need to recognise that when it comes to the establishment of the legislative assembly for this island, this new Ireland, that you know it has to involve uh, Northern Ireland as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And the proposal I had was that we would have a bicameral system, except the upper house wouldn't be as limited as the House of Lords or the Shannad uh, in, in Ireland are, but that there would be real significant powers given to the uh, upper house. Um, not, maybe let's look at the American model. Maybe not as much power, but very significant powers given to the upper house. And then if that was going to be the system, that we would have one house of legislature in Dublin and another house of legislature uh, in Stormont. I'm not saying which one it should be, mm-hmm. but I think... Like, I suppose one of the fears of not just uh, people coming from a unionist Protestant background in Northern Ireland, but people coming from any background, is that is this process of a new country going to remove power from uh, Northern Ireland, the region, from Belfast? I think it's important that a very strong House of Legislature remains there, and it would make the region politically stronger. But the point I emphasised before, at present, if you look at the uh, unionist vote, in the United Kingdom, it accounts for 1.1% of the total vote uh, of the United Kingdom. In in an all-Ireland scenario, it would account for over 11%. Mm-hmm. So that the, the, the northern region would have huge power. And the fact that there'd be a House of Legislature there, I think, would confirm that power. And just in terms of the federal point, uh, now, I'm not opposed to a federal structure. And I know other people have argued that I've argued that Stormont should be left there carrying out its functions. My only concern about it is, is I question whether Ireland as a country of what would be 7 million people is large enough to have that federal system. But I'm open-minded about it as well. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I think it was a great document. And as you rightfully say, you're not wedded to anything. There, there were, I know there are more than conversation starters, but at least, you know, it's a, it's a contribution. And as you rightfully say, people are more than entitled to come up with their own. Yeah. Much has made, um, Jim, um, of the subvention block grant that the North currently receives from Westminster as an argument to say that the unity state could not pay for itself. What's your assessment of that? Well, the um, the block grant is probably somewhere between £9 billion pounds and uh, £10 billion. Pounds. But listen, if we're just going to focus on the amount of the annual subvention, like I think we're going to have a very defeatist type of discussion about uh, not just the, the new, new country I'd like to see, but also just about the future of Northern Ireland. As I say, it's, it should not be the case that Northern Ireland should be doomed to be a relatively poor region of a wealthy uh, country. Like my own view is that if there was a new Ireland, that we would prosper economically in the same way as the South has through a very attractive uh, corporation tax. I know President Biden may have things to say about that, but certainly in terms of attracting in foreign direct investment, Northern Ireland hasn't succeeded as well as Ireland has in attracting in foreign direct investment. Like we have 250,000 people employed in foreign direct investment. Last year, we took in something like 11.8 billion euro in taxes from them. And there's no reason why Northern Ireland couldn't 
succeed to the same extent. The part of the reason appears to be Niall, and I looked at the paper prepared by John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morganroth, is that the education system in Northern Ireland probably isn't performing as well as the education system in Ireland. And listen, I'm not going into a game of economic one-upmanship or social one-upmanship. There are things in Northern Ireland that are done much better than down here, like vaccine rollout. But I just think we need to recognise that if we're going to just look at it, the, the economic question on the basis of, ah, there's a subvention that comes in from the UK each year of 9 to 10 billion, we just want to hold on to that. That's a very defeatist and negative argument. And there's no guarantee that's always going to be there at that amount. Like, governments will change in the United Kingdom and they may not want to uh, confer as much financial resources on Northern Ireland in the future. I'm going slightly off uh, topic here, Jim, but you mentioned um, education there. Um, what's your opinion on integrated education? And I suppose, well, we... I know you don't live in the north, but you know the way that it's rolled out there as well. So um, just, yeah, in general. Well, listen, we need to integrate the communities in Northern Ireland much more. Like people, like I played a lot of rugby when I was growing up. And also, as I said, I'm the son of a Kerry man who was a fanatic Gaelic football supporter. So I played Gaelic and I played rugby. And I suppose had I not played rugby, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to meet many people from the unionist Protestant tradition uh, in Northern Ireland. It helps to meet people. Like obviously people in Northern Ireland live beside each other, but the levels of integration should be much greater. And I suppose dividing children at an early age contributes to that lack of integration. Absolutely. Now, you know, I, I, I think we... I suppose the converse argument is people say this we're entitled. The churches obviously play a very significant role in education of people. But if, if, we're, if we're not going to have integrated education, we have to ensure that there are other mechanisms in place to achieve integration of children at a young age. But, but, and the sports organisations have a big responsibility there. You know, other mechanisms, I agree 100%, but the most obvious one would be at a school needs. Yeah, you're right. You're right, actually. Yeah, but like, what would the impact of that be on if parents are told that they can't bring their kids up in the, in, in accordance with their religion? Is but, that going to have? But, sorry, but, I'm interviewing now. Would that have a big impact? I, I would say it would have. Um, my own mum was um, a former primary school teacher, um, but like, like my own, I, I I think parents have a big part to play in this, and we'll get on to this conversation in a little bit about civic society and stuff like this. But like. I think there's a will there for people. You know, we're deliberately polarizing people and communities, you know, when, when they're just about to talk and walk, mm. barely talking and walking. And like subconsciously, what effect does that have on a community? You know, because sometimes like there's still peace walls up in Belfast. You know, don't forget this. And, and like we're talking about 2021 here, like and, and the Good Friday Agreement is, 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 you know, a generation ago. And, and like how can we help to move society forward and i know i'm focusing on the north here and you're not from the north so i don't want to hog the whole conversation about the north but you know one way of breaking down barriers for future generations has to be 
how can we bring one hearts and minds and bring people together? And I think the most common thing to do is start them off at an early age, however that may be. And as I said to you there now, I think education will be a very good starting point. And people could still practice their own religion in these schools, I believe. You know, it doesn't have to yeah. be a non-religious school. It, it can have different periods, different days of the week. I don't know what, I'm not an expert, but you know, if there's a desire there, and I believe this is the key word, if there's a will and a desire, then it will happen. But it may suit certain agendas for it not to happen, Jim, but you know, that's only my opinion. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're right about that. Like down here as well, a lot of parents want to be able to educate their kids outside of a religious environment. Uh, many parents want their kids education in a religious environment. But I suppose if we're going to try and say to marginalised communities that you should not be rioting with each other, you should not be uh, attacking each other, like we have a responsibility as well to ensure that uh, the other aspects of society in Northern Ireland are more integrated. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you, there was the obvious way to do it is through education. But that is uh, that's a bold move that has to be made, and you know that's really for people in Northern Ireland to determine that at this stage. But certainly, if there's going to be a new Ireland, as I'm suggesting, yes, like I don't want to have a new Ireland that's just going to be the except the politics in Northern Ireland is going to be the same, and we're going to have polarized groups in marginalized areas, or we're going to have lack of integration between the communities. That's not the type of new country anyone wants. But the the only real point in doing this is not if we just replace a united kingdom with a united ireland and the d divisions continue within it what we need to do is create a new country where the divisions are eroded away and we allow for full integration and just for clarification i was speaking in regards about a new ireland as well you know um i think yeah. it, it could be difficult to fix that the current system um but yeah in any new ireland we have to have new imaginative thinking in 2017, Jim, Michael Martin said Fianna Fáil planned to publish a 12-point plan on unity. But to date, um, this has not been forthcoming. Is it still in the work and process? And if published, do you see it complementing your own plan? Well, in, in fairness to Michal, there is the shared island unit now, which is in the Department of the Taoiseach. It's given specific recognition in terms of trying to increase cross-border cooperation. Um, like he, like me, is uh, an Irish Republican. He wants to see uh, reunification through exclusively peaceful means, as has been uh, Fianna Fáil's uh, consistent um, policy. Like in terms of uh, a, a point plan for Irish unity, I think what we need to do is talk. What you're doing, I think, is very beneficial. Um, politicians, I think it's important as well that it's not left to just certain political parties to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Because if you just leave it to, I suppose, political parties who have very clear views on it, mm -hmm. it's going to become slightly a polarised discussion. We need more politicians involved in this debate. And as you're indicating as well, Niall, we need to get people from outside politics talking about it as well. Because sometimes it's difficult for people in political parties to take leaps uh, which can damage them within their own political of parties. Course. And we need to recognise that. Yeah. And, you know, if people from outside are prepared to take those leaps without any consequences for themselves, you know, then the discussion can be progressed much further. Yeah. Um, do you see this new shared island department? By the way, I, I want to put this quite categorically on record. I absolutely welcome that. And, and it's a great initiative. 
and um, I, I'll take a wee backhand a compliment that you, you stole our name nearly. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, you know, it has to be much more, Jim, than, than a, a box ticking exercise. And I'm not saying that that's all it is, by the way. But, you know, it's, it, it's been established. We've had a series of um, Zoom meetings, um, shared our, our own platform here, Shared Ireland. We're invited to the Civic one. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And, and it's great to see input being sought all over the island. And that's exactly what needs to happen. But it's time now that we put a bit of meat on the bone. And where do you see this shared island plan going? Well, first of all, I agree with you. The Zoom meetings have been very good. It is a good uh, initiative. Um, but I suppose, like what I would like to see, I'm just speaking in a personal capacity mm-hmm. here. Like, you know, I've put this paper out. You're talking about everyone's saying, you know, we're talking about reunification, uh, potential referendum. Still, the question hasn't been answered. What does this new country look like? Any reasonable-minded person in Northern Ireland is going to want to know, and indeed in in Ireland, is going to want to know, what is this thing we're voting for? Mm-hmm. What's the constitution going to look like? Mm-hmm. What, what are we going to do? With, what's going to, who's going to be the head of state? What type of legislative system are we going to have? What laws apply? What relationship are we going to have with other countries? Are we going to be in the European Union or not? So like, I think um, what I would like to see is whether it's done by the shared island unit or not but people in ireland need to start working on what a new constitution for this new ireland would look like and, and you know i've spoken about it I, i'm waiting for somebody to say well this is why why, why don't you get down and do it <laughs> and actually i was on a program the other day with a, a unionist politician very straightforward guy uh, straightforward speaking unionist and the interviewer said to him you know what do you think of jim o'callaghan's uh, proposal for a constitution for a new ireland and he said to me well show it to me will you what are you talking about which is the natural response yeah, uh, that true. i would have thought he, he should have and hey, so there, like, i think there, there's we no need to argument work with that yeah there's no argument with that uh, you know something yeah there isn't an argument with yeah. that which i suppose brings me on nicely to the next point jim do you see a citizens assembly as the next natural step in terms of formulating a proper detailed plan that could be put to the people in a unity referendum. You know, this, this is the next logical step, but there seems to be an awful lot of, and I, and I would actually like to use stronger words than that, um, you know, resistance from the political leadership. Um, and I'm specifically talking about Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael here. Um, like, I believe even Michael Martin came out today and said that, you know, it's... Uh, um, a border poll would be divisive, you know, like with the greatest of respect, um, Michael, say that living in the six counties, say that as an Irish nationalist, you know, uh, um, I would go as far to say, how dare he? Yeah, but this, I think, unfortunately, part of the debate has been uh, fueled by the demand to have, let's just have a border poll now, okay? And like, I just think that will. First of all, it would be defeated because the work hasn't been done. And I think it is sort of an emotional response. We need to prepare. People who are advocating reunification need to prepare Jim, for it. Jim, can I, I, think can, it's can I just put yeah. in there for one second, just in case yeah, this certainly. gets lost in translation? I agree with that. I, or the Shared Ireland team, or Ireland's Future, or any civic organisation that would be advocating for a border poll, we want the preparation to start now. We don't want to hold a border poll 
tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? Absolutely not. And never have we said so. We want the talking and the conversations and planning to prepare. And for the, the Taoiseach to come out and say them words that he said today, I, you know, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't what I expected to hear. Okay, well, listen, all I will say to you is, like, a lot of the de political debate down here in Ireland, I know you're not saying it, but a lot of the political debate is sort of framed in, you know, let's have the border poll now. I know you're not saying that, but, like, I think we need to recognise that, uh, first of all, this is a once in a... Uh, well, I know it's, it can happen every seven years, but, like, this really needs to be carefully prepared. It's going to be, you know, once for... There may be another one after it, God knows, 20, 30 years after it. But let's be realistic. If there's a referendum, a border poll in the next 10 years, there won't be another one for, I'd say, another 30 years after that. I don't see it going to Scottish way. So, so, um, I'm, I'm, so gonna, need... I'm going to quote Colin stood here, the SDLP leader, uh, and, and I agree with him. He says, do the preparation, do it once, win it, and forget about it. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think that's a good correct. But I, I think, and I'm not saying you are, but like I think people can sometimes be unfair on the Taoiseach in suggesting that he's resistant to discussion of air reunification. In terms of citizens' assembly, it's slightly different to, first of all, I think it would be a good idea, but the reason it's different, like we had citizens' assembly for the social issues mm -hmm. in the South, and Obviously, any citizens' assembly for reunification has to involve citizens from both sides of uh, the border. There's no point just having the citizens of Ireland. We need citizens from Northern Ireland uh, as well in respect of it. And that can be just slightly tricky to tease out. But what I would like to see is civic groups getting together. Like, you don't need, like, well, I suppose we had legislation previously for a citizens' assembly. But like, what's to stop civic groups getting together trying to form a citizens' assembly? I know you could say that we need the support of the government, and that's a valid point. But I think we need to move this on in terms of getting civic groups talking about it. And uh, I think a civic citizens' assembly would be helpful uh, in that regard. Well, as co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement, and the Irish government is one of those co-guarantors, Tim. You know, I, I, I think with the greatest of respect to you, um, I think that's a cop out coming from um, someone in government. You know, this should be this initiative has to be led by the government. It has to be. You know, we need to follow your leadership because at the end of the day, we can okay. talk, we can talk to the cows come home as the old saying is. But but you know, these are the people that have got funding. These are the people that have got your hands on the the levers of power. And yes, I agree, we could be more proactive possibly as civic society. But you know, the initiative and and uh, has to come from yourselves. Okay, I, I hear you on that, and I think there's a, the, you make a valid point in respect to that. I suppose, though, in terms of the Good Friday Agreement, you're right, the Irish government is a co-guarantor, but I suppose that means that any step that's taken by either government has to be done in discussion with, and in a way, agreement with the other uh, government. Like, certainly, the power to call a referendum is provided for in the 1998 Northern Ireland Act. It's a power to be exercised by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. But Ireland would expect that that is something that wouldn't be done without discussion uh, with the government uh, in Ireland, you know. But we listen, I think there's a record, even listening to Boris Johnson today, like I know people, he was interviewed and said, oh, it'll be a very, very long time <laughs> before there's a... Like, what jumped at me from that is that this is coming. Yeah. 
you know, okay, I, I know the point he was trying to make, but here you had the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party, recognising that there will be a referendum on Irish unity. Now, I know he tries to put it off for as long as possible, but I think it's coming. I think we need to prepare for it. And um, I know and I accept what you say, the Irish government has a very significant role to play in that, along with the British government. Yeah, and I'm just, I suppose, before we put this particular subject to bed, in regarding having a conversation about a new shared Ireland, you know, I fully accept that there can be no predetermined outcome before a conversation begins. Because, you know, I wouldn't want to enter into any um, setup where I thought the outcome and the conversation was only going to be tailored about one outcome. So I'm trying to sit in a unionist um, seat here and see life through their lens. But my fear, and I'm not being patronising here, um, my fear from a unionist perspective would be this, Jim, is that if they don't get involved in this conversation, well then potentially the, the train could leave them behind and yet again they will have failed their people. And that's not a criticism and it's, it's, it's not me being patronising. And, you know, and that's why I say that there can be no predetermined outcome before a conversation begins. But how do we encourage um, unionism to have a stake in this conversation, Jim, because it's their island, it's their future, it'll be their children and their grandchildren that they're having this conversation for. What would you say to unionism? Yeah, well, that's a good question, that, and I said it in the paper as well. I think it's going to be difficult to get unionist political parties involved in debating and planning for a unified new Ireland in advance of any referendum. Because let's be realistic now, their cherished aim, in the same way as it's my cherished aim to see a united Ireland, their cherished aim is to see the retention of the union between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Absolutely. And that's what they want to preserve. And they're perfectly it's a perfectly legitimate political aspiration to retain that union. Mm -hmm. So like I suppose if let's say they started a conversation about uh, how they want to improve the union for nationalists in Northern Ireland. And are nationalists going to get involved in that discussion about improving the union for nationalists in Northern Ireland when they could legitimately say, listen, we want to talk about the United Ireland. That's a very so good I think point. it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard to get unionists to engage, unionist politicians to engage in this debate in advance of a referendum. And I suppose there's all sorts of issues about whether or not you have a poll in Northern Ireland to decide whether or not there's to be United Ireland or not. And then subsequent to that, you have a vote in the whole island to determine the constitution. Like These things have to be thought out mm -hmm. uh, in advance. But I think there is a lot of, and since I delivered that paper over uh, in England, a lot of uh, unionist people have contacted me and asked to meet me and they want to talk about it. And they, 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 they recognise that there is a let's put it mildly, a prospect, a higher level could be a likelihood that there will be a unified Ireland and they want to play their part in it. And like, it's essential that they do play their part in it because the people from the hugest background in Northern Ireland are as Irish as I am. And I know they want to preserve their British heritage and identity as well. And that's where the challenge is to ensure that that is protected for them as well in the context of being in a new Ireland. Massive subject, Jim, and literally, oh, yeah. we, we, we could sit here for years discussing it. Um, if you, just to put this question to bed, finally, if you were leader of Fianna Fáil, 
Would the establishment of a citizens' assembly be something you would personally seek to do? It depends when I am, but I think it's a valuable. I've spoken to people about it before. Hey, I think I a love, citizens' I love, assembly. I love the way you started that. It depends when I am. <laughs> well, it depends. It depends. So if I am, when it happens, if it never, it may never happen. Uh, but uh, listen, I think any it's a valuable tool that was used very effectively for constitutional change here previously. But listen, the main citizens' assembly, I suppose, as well as Dáil Éireann, but the problem with that, and indeed the, the assembly in Northern Ireland, but the problem with Dáil Éireann and the assembly in Northern Ireland is it's dominated by party politics, mm-hmm. and as you've recognised, it's difficult to get people to move yeah. if they're rigidly stuck to a party position. We need to get other people, whether it's in a citizens' assembly or whatever, no, we need other people from Northern Ireland and Ireland talking about this topic. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, would you believe it? 56 minutes has passed here and honestly, I can't believe it. So um, I don't want to take up much more of your time. A couple of last quick ones, Jim. What, what do you think the main apprehensions people of the South would have with unity and how can this be overcome? I know you touched well, on that briefly there. Yeah, Listen, there's a lot. When I speak, like, I've family living in Northern Ireland, and um, I, I regard Northern Ireland as part of Ireland, to be frank with you. Uh, um, but there's a lot of people in the South who, I suppose, because partition has gone on for 100 years, but even before partition, maybe the North, the North was viewed differently uh, in the South. And I suppose um, there are people. Uh, in Ireland, you probably look at the politics of Northern Ireland and say, God, it hasn't progressed much in 100 years. And do we really want to uh, integrate that political dispute into what is a fairly uh, successful, calm political environment in the South? That would be the main apprehension I would have thought of people living in the South. Mm-hmm. I suppose I, I once um, somebody asked me that then. I, I suppose I say we potentially, and I say we collectively in the north, have to maybe sell ourselves a little better. You know, um, it's a bit like advertising a house and saying, um, you know, house for sale, leaky roof, needs a lot of work done. Um, you know, is it an attractive, um, you know, proposal for anybody to want to yeah. uh, join? <laughs> you know. But I know. But again, it's not. That, 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 I know you don't intend, but that could be interpreted as though. We're buying out the nor- Northern Ireland, that it's Ireland buying oh, Northern no, Ireland. It's not, not. Obviously, oh, no. Obviously, there's a lot of people, there's more people down here to convince with. But my own view is most people in uh, Ireland think that partition, I heard Max Hastings refer to it as a wrong that was done. That's, you know, that's a motive language, but most people think it was not the correct decision. It was, a, it was an understandable decision. But what it really did was it sort of divided Irish people based on their religion and their politics when what should have happened is that they should have just got together and resolved their differences, irrespective of the fact that they come from different religions or political persuasions. You know? Like it was a it was a, a lazy solution in many respects. It was, a, it was an understandable solution. I said in the paper that it wasn't an irrational decision to partition the country politically. But even James Craig thought that it wasn't going to... Uh, be long-term solution and like at some uh, my own view is that there is an inevitability to um 
reunification and we just need to ensure that it is done with as much empathy and respect for all the different traditions and new traditions of the on the island as possible. Mm-hmm. Who inspires you, Jim? Uh, who inspires? I suppose for people I've known personally, my parents inspired me a lot. Uh, very strong people around me uh, when I was growing up. Uh, I still have strong people who are close to me in my uh, family now. So yeah, people around me. I've, I've, I've had the, the advantage of having strong people around me. I think that makes a big difference to uh, people in their life to have be surrounded by strong people. But in terms of politics, I don't know. Were you asking about that, Niall? About oh, who no, inspires just, me? In pol- just generally, yeah. but go ahead. Who inspires you? In the oh, well, I don't. I don't. To be honest with you, I don't really. Uh, you know, I don't uh, sort of have heroes. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, Try to model myself and anyone else. No, you know? it wasn't just really. Thing, yeah. It wasn't really a political uh, question, in fairness. Mm. Uh, what's your greatest achievement to date in? In your political career, we'll, we'll narrow it down for you. Yeah, I would have thought the uh, I managed to get a piece of legislation called the Parole Act mm-hmm. enacted from the opposition benches between 2016 and 2019. Okay. And sometimes politicians in the opposition say, oh, I've got a piece of legislation enacted. It's very hard to do it if you're in opposition. Mm-hmm. And usually it's a small piece of legislation. But this was a very detailed, comprehensive piece of legislation mm-hmm. that has transformed the legal process for people applying, prisoners applying for parole, it gives uh, it gives um, an entitlement to the victims of crime to make submissions and provides them with legal assistance during the parole process. Very good, so this, that's that's a that legislative achievement. This is not going to set the world on fire, but uh, it, it is a legislative achievement. Why was Fianna Fáil your party of choice when you threw your hat in a political ring? Well, I was um, sorry. I always viewed myself and am an Irish Republican, you know. And I suppose history was always a subject of huge interest to me, particularly Irish history. Uh, and I thought there was, um, you know, I just thought it was wrong, and that uh, I, I thought partition was wrong, you know. And I don't mean that. I thought it was wrong for everyone. I thought it damaged unionism. I thought it damaged, sorry, I, I thought it damaged people from the Protestant tradition in Northern Ireland, from the nationalist tradition, obviously, in Northern Ireland. It also damaged down here. Because, like, there was, when you read back about the revolution in Ireland in, 19, say, 1916 to 1922, there was a revolutionary zeal then. And it was interesting. But the, the free state that took over was a very conservative state that didn't really represent the ideals of the revolutionary area. And part of the reason for that was because of partition. And part of the reason was because... I suppose, a huge amount of power. And I think this is probably historically understandable. A huge amount of power was given to the instruction and teachings of the Catholic Church at the time that the state was founded, you know. Right. Um, last two very quick questions. We try to end all podcasts on a slightly lighter note. So apologies in advance for firing these at you, Jim. God. <laughs> if you could be anyone, either from history or alive, for just one day, who would that person be and why? Oh, as, well, listen, as I say to you, I don't have a uh, huge desire to be anyone else. This is the only life I have, so I might as well enjoy it. But um, who would I like to be? I probably I played a lot of sport when I was younger, you know. I would have liked to have been Gareth Edwards for a day. Oh. He was a great scrum half who played for Wales. I'd love to play. Uh, I've been Gareth Edwards playing for the barbarians against New Zealand in 1971 or three or whatever it was yeah 
Very good. I'll take that. Last question, and again on a slightly more lighthearted note, or serious, depending on how you want to answer it. If you could invite three people, they can be alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would them three people be? And again, why? Okay, three people. I'd invite uh, Lyndon Johnson. Okay. Because um, he is uh, probably the most effective politician I've ever read about. And uh, he was a deeply flawed person. Uh, like all all great people he, are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was deeply flawed, but he no, no one could get things done uh, like him. Who else? I'd like to. I don't know if these people would get on with each other. Um, <laughs> that, would make it, also, that would make it more interesting, Jim. <laughs> I think I'd like to have Sylvia Plath at my dinner party as well. She was a poet, died uh, in the fifties. She was a very successful poet. It's only been really recognised now. Okay. And who, who would the third person I love? Oh yeah, Joyce. Ah, Definitely. very good. Yes. Yeah, oh Joyce there as well. Yeah. So, uh, we need, a, we, need, we need a few bottles of wine, I'm telling you now, for that one. <laughs> Come here, tell me this. What makes you think that they potentially mightn't get on? Oh, I, I, I don't... I think Lyndon Johnson was probably a bit crude. Mm-hmm. And I don't think himself and Sylvia Plath would have uh, <laughs> hit it off that well. Um, I'd say Joyce and Sylvia Plath would have got on. Like, Joyce is the... the a really fascinating person, you know. Like I recommend anyone rather than listen to me if you read Elman's biography of him. Mm-hmm. Like he was the most remarkable Irish person, probably. I would have thought uh, Joyce and Sylvia Plath would go. They all like to drink, you know, and I, including myself. <laughs> That's the only similarity I have with the other three. <laughs> never, never a bad thing for a conversation starter, is it? Jim O'Callaghan, you've been an absolute gentleman for giving me one hour and approaching six minutes of your time. Can I ask you a wee favour? Yeah. If you do become leader of Fianna Fáil, will you come back and say hello to us? Oh, listen, definitely. And if I don't, I'll come back and say hello to you as well. <laughs> Very good. That's a, that's, a, that's a date then. Jim O'Callaghan, next leader of Fianna Fáil. It's been a pleasure. Oh, and would you believe it, in one hour and five minutes, we haven't discussed Brexit or the protocol once. What a relief that was. (laughs) Listen, folks, thank you very much for listening. If you do like or what you heard, and if you have any suggestions about anything that was discussed today, don't be afraid to write your comments um, underneath, and a like and a retweet will be appreciated. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.